from KQED. Support for this podcast comes from the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports research and civil dialogue on the deepest questions facing humankind. Learn more at templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Exactly. 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 A conversation series in search of a finer point. Now, here's your host, New York Times bestselling author Kelly Corrigan. So I'm knocking on the door of 50, which it turns out means a lot less than I thought it would, especially when I think about how many years I have been making the exact same mistakes, like getting mad at people for doing what people always do or procrastinating. And if I had a nickel for every promise I make at night that I break by 10 a.m. the next day, I really want to believe in the possibility of late-stage personal change. To sort it out, I needed someone real, someone who's been through a lot and doesn't mind talking about it. A few years ago, I became friends with Anne Lamott, which takes no time at all since, as the writer Ruth Reichel said, a minute with Anne Lamott is like a week with anyone else. Annie's written over a dozen books, all of them bestsellers, and will tell you anything including her plastic surgery fantasies and her strong distaste for a certain political family. And so she's the perfect person to talk to about compassion, forgiveness, and hope. Ladies and gentlemen, the profound, the hilarious, the profoundly hilarious, Anne Lamott. Say hi to everybody, Annie. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. How long did it take you to get here from Marin? It took um, most of the week. <laughs> it was just a nightmare. It's just a nightmare. It's enough to make you want to stay home. Yeah. Um, so you have three things that make you a really interesting case study or a model. Um, one is you're a recovering addict. Two is you talk good. And three is there's nothing you won't cop to. Like how you say you sometimes think such awful things about people that if you ever said them out loud, it would make Jesus drink gin straight from the cat dish. (laughs) After reading you all these years, I think I've whittled down your three big messages, the things that make hard change possible. So chapter one is forgiveness. I read that a working title of yours, of a book that you haven't quite gotten around to writing yet, is All the People I Still Hate, A Christian Perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can you talk about your dad and the journal and what it took to sort of let go of that anger? Oh, there's a story um, in this book I wrote recently about how I'd always been my fa- I'd always been my father's girl and the apple of his eye and really a perfect girl and um, and then a perfect young woman and then he got sick real life reared its ugly head and he got brain cancer and when I was 23 I was living out in Bolinas so I was drinking you know a fifth a day and 
taking, you know, smoking non-habit forming marijuana many, many times a day and um, taking a lot of hallucinogens and all of a sudden my dad was dying of brain melanoma. And so I took what I thought was just a very, my younger brother and I took the very, very best possible care we could. And he was a writer, Kenneth Lamott, and he was keeping a journal. And that was, in fact, how Hard Laughter came into being, which was a novel about it, although it was very, very different than real life. He had said, I'm going to keep, I'm going to take notes about this. I suggest you do, too. And all of a sudden, I had a story to tell, because I've been writing for years. Then, you know, he died, end of the world. You know, the anvil fell on my family. It took forever for us to make a comeback, you know, tiny green shoots breaking through the pavement for a long time. And then my brothers and I are all really close still. And then about five years ago, the woman he had been with sent me said journal. And in it, there were all these things about how, oh, Annie, uh, you know, you can't tell Annie this because you know how the crying will start up. Or she came to the hospital in the usual um, mix of um, too much good cheer and bad jokes. and. You know, and I had thought that I was like a St. Bernard because I was keeping people's spirits up. And I fought tooth and nail to keep my family together, and I still do. And so when you got the journal, you probably thought, this is going to be the most enjoyable. Like, I'm going to read No, yeah. My, I much... thought it would be like a tribute. Right. A tr <laughs> like right. a tribute journal to the fact that I was, I'm very real. For all my faults, I'm real. I cry. I believe in crying. It heals you. It cleanses you. It hydrates you. It waters the ground at your feet. Things grow. And I didn't cry all the time. I don't cry all that much. Well, I do if I'm drinking, because I started to think about this dog we had that died when I was nine, and anyone would cry. But <laughs> cry. And, and I really kept it together. And the journal just said that uh, he and his girlfriend just had hoped I had, wouldn't come over certain nights. And a lot of it, very little was actually about us, but the parts that were about me were like, well, she arrived at the airport, she was from the airport, she was very, very drunk, but needed to see me. She'd had some mm -hmm. sort of a moment of inspiration she needed to share, you know, and started thinking about the dog that had died when she was nine or something. <laughs> and, um, and it was awful, it was the end of the world. And so I did what you do, is I gave him the boot from my heart, from my tiny princess heart, and I took his journal and I put it out in the garage. And I said, fine. You know, we, we each get to think and we each get to behave as we are called to do. And it, he'd been dead 25 years or something. And so I thought, um, I have forgiven some truly loathsome people. I mean, if we, if we had time, but... Um, <laughs> Um, Maybe we could just talk about one or something. <laughs> and, and so with my dad, um, it was funny, and I, um, but I, you know, there's an old saying, and I get credited with it, I wish, but it says that to not forgive is to drink the rat poison and wait for the rat to die. And, and to not forgive is the most toxic behavior we, we have. It, it does um, kill people, I do, I do believe, and it kills them spiritually and mentally and physically. It's so exhausting. It's exhausting, and it starts to argue a wasted life. And mm -hmm. it also starts to argue just like mental illness, that you think somehow you alone have been the victim of so much, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And um, what's it going to give us to just unclench for like 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. Well, what it's going to give you is like eternity. It's going to give you your life. It's going to give you you back, right. Right? right? But it does, It's boy, it's not my strong suit. Like the two things, you know, I'm a left-wing Christian, and that's very embarrassing, but... Um, <laughs> uh, like the two things that you're supposed to really, really try to uh, manifest on this earth are forgiveness and letting go. 
right? And they're like my two worst things, <laughs> you know? And, and we always say everything we've let go of has claw marks on it, you know? It's yeah. like, oh, oh, oh. Or, um, and forgiveness is the other thing. It's just not my strong suit. But with my fa father, the willingness was like a little bit of meat tenderizer on my heart. And, and I started to understand how terrible, he was young, he was way younger than I am. Um, when he got sick, he was like 50 or something, and um, 52, and how terrifying it must have been, and how um, scary to see his daughter, his closest um, relative, in, in, in just kind of suicidal with grief, mm -hmm. you know? And, mm -hmm. and the fact is, we don't get over grief. The culture tells you you will, and you'll get over certain losses, but we know you don't, you mm -hmm. know? But he would have known that it was really going to Take you really down. be a nuclear hit on the family and take yeah. us down. And all three of us are alcoholics and alcoholics um, and addicts also. So little by little. and There's a party. Yeah, yeah, really. And, and uh, little by little, I, I unclenched a little bit. And you know, you take the action. I believe you take the action and the insight follows. But as a child raised on the New York Times, like the, the golden calf of the New York Times, I believe you should figure things out. And that mm -hmm. all of the great people and all the people that will be written about in the New York Times have, have brilliant cerebral figure it out minds. Figure it out is not a good slogan. And when we stop <laughs> figuring it out, then miracles happen, like grace in the form of a little spiritual WD-40, a tiny spritz of give, of ease, where before yeah. it was clench, and I will never as long as I live. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you go, well, and you start to breathe again. Well, once you're breathing again, in, in the Christian tradition, that's Holy Spirit, that's breath, that's the breath of the whole universe. And so you're not in your head, you know, where this toxic radio station is playing almost all the time about how, um, how much better and different you are and how much obviously more brilliant you are um, and humble. And, um, <laughs> and then out of the left-hand speaker, what a complete a fake and a loser you are and a fraud. And so I started to, instead of living in my head trying to figure out what could he have meant by this, mm -hmm. um, what he meant was he was going down. You know, mm -hmm. he was going down. And, um, and so I take the action. So the girlfriend had sent me the journal, and I, w I didn't want to write and say, uh, you may, this may be a psychiatric rather than a literary or a state issue here. And it might be that you want to talk to somebody about why you would send them the journal in which they are, but I didn't. And that to, me, that to me is the grace of getting older, is, is, um, is not saying the stuff you think, is, 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 is breathing and releasing and breathing and releasing. And I put little things in a God box, and I'll say to God, here, it's all yours, because I picture God with kind of a clipboard, you know, and, <laughs> and I'll say, you take it, and I'm going to keep my sticky fingers off the controls of the spaceship till I hear from you. And I heard, write her a note, thank her, because she gave you what she thought was precious, your father's last written work. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I did it, and then she wrote back, and she sent pictures of her grandchildren, and I thought, well, enough is enough. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, Let's not, not get carried away. <laughs> Let's not go psycho here. So uh, uh, then I sent her a picture of my grandson, you know, and then we had, we had flow where you can't get to where we were from where we had been. We hadn't spoken in 20 years. Yeah. So um, I see that happen over and over again. And so um, with my father, then I, I just, my heart so softened. And I just felt grief for him, not, into, not getting to meet my child or, or his other, um, his two sons' children. 
And, um, and little by little, the plates of the earth shifted, and there was just kind of love and, um, and reconciliation. I'm a huge believer in, in reconciliation with a capital R. So you're like a fake it to make it person, right? Like that. No, I'm a take the action. I'm a like don't yeah. think your way through this. Like do, if you want to have loving feelings, do do loving things. If you want to mm -hmm. have loving feelings today, tonight, do loving things. You know, well, what do I do? Well, you have to stop at the health food store on the way home for milk. Flirt with really old people. They're very, <laughs> they're very lonely. They're very lonely. And if they're old women, they're very lonely and they're invisible. And I flirt with them and I say, I love your hat. I love your hat. Yeah. And, um, and lift somebody this much. You know, lift them and then I'm lifted. That's the system. Mm -hmm. So I do, I don't um, believe so much. I mean, I I'm so on to myself of what a fraud I have been. And like you said, oh, I'll say anything. Oh, I'm always telling people I've read books that I haven't read. Or, <laughs> you know, or, or um, they'll say. How many say, people here have said yeah, they've read no, a book that they yeah. haven't read? I know that people say something like, oh, do you ever even remember the first time you read War and Peace? And I go, God, I don't think. I mean, what's it been? 40 years, you know? And I never read War and Peace. I was, you know. Nobody read War and I Peace. Meant Not one to. person. I meant to. Yeah. And I feel I should get a partial credit for that. But, um, so, you know, we, you, you fake it because especially if you're a woman, you were raised to, and it's very, very scary to um, be um, exposed and like whether it's your thighs or whether it's a failing academically or intellectually or with your children, maybe your children you feel that you failed or maybe it's that you didn't keep your weight down or maybe you didn't, whatever, but if you're a woman you're just going to get smashed down for it, you know, and so you pretend it's not a problem anymore and we have a culture of people pretending it's not that big a problem, whatever it is that you think might really be hurting their hearts and their beings and their souls and their whole family. My Jesuit friend, Tom Weston, who's so hilarious, said, the American's way is that, are there's five rules. You must not have anything wrong with you or different about you. Rule two is that if you do, you should just get over it as quickly as possible. <laughs> Um, rule three is that if you can't get over it, you should pretend you have. It's like not a problem anymore. Rule four is that if you can't even pretend to get over, you shouldn't show up. It's like really, I'm, it's really painful for the rest of us. And, uh, and rule five is if you're going to insist on the right to show up, at least be ashamed, right? And that is what American women were taught to do. And American women lost the ability to eat. Mm -hmm. And American women lost the ability to tell their stories. If you grew up around alcoholics, you lost the ability to see what's there. Because what you do as a child of alcoholism is to help every, the parents, the grown-ups, especially the fathers, because they have all the power, feel better about the catastrophe of their decisions and their addiction, right? And so you have to reclaim the ability to see what is even going on, whether you mm -hmm. say it out loud or not. If you're a writer, you say it out loud. Yeah. And you have to learn not to be ashamed, you know? And I wish this were a program where swearing were encouraged because... It is. Oh, it is? Oh, it, it is? 100% is <laughs> encouraged. Okay. <laughs> Because it takes a very long time, especially for girls, especially for very, very good girls, to say, you know, thank you for sharing. F you. Who cares? You know? And, um... There could be a revelation, so, Annie. So forgiveness and the horrible, hard, awful news is that you have to forgive yourself. 
Yes, and also forgive people for not being who you thought they were. I mean, that's like a big thing. If you have a parent that you have a lifelong crush on, you've Mm -hmm. probably romanticized them and put them on a pedestal that no person could actually stand on. Mm -hmm. And so then when you're face-to-face with something that's more nuanced about them or more Mm -hmm. varied, that's a real moment of pain because the guy's not perfect. He's more like you than you thought he was. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, so chapter two is compassion. Okay. And I thought the best story that you could tell was about going to San Quentin with um, Nishama. Mm-hmm. Nishama, yeah. So tell these guys about that. Well, that's a long story. It's, um, I can tell, I wrote it much better than I could ever tell it, but we, I don't even remember why it's an interesting story to you. I'll tell you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, t- you tell it, Because Al. exposure leads to empathy. That's why I think it's a great story. Oh, yeah. So you exposed yourself to something that day, mm-hmm. and that allowed you to sort of connect with people that you didn't think you had anything in common mm-hmm. with. So now that I've set the mm-hmm. table for you, will you mm-hmm. tell the story? Well, I actually live pretty near San Quentin. There's a fantastic beach there, and I've written about it. My dad taught at San Quentin in the 50s, and um, part of my coming to Compassion was that I had these um, extremely progressive people that champion the underdog. That's what it means to be a liberal or a progressive, so you're on the side of the underdog. So we went to San Quentin whenever they were going to gas somebody, you know, as children. Then when I was a teenager, I'd go with my dad and his friends, and they'd, they'd give me the flask to drink with them. And, I, and I, we would drink, and we would wait, and the light, you know, till it was over. And then we would go home, and uh, my dad wrote a biography. How many people would show up? Oh, a hundred? Uh-huh. Yeah, and then I went to, when they were, the last person they killed there was many, a number of years ago, uh, and Joan Baez came and sang, you know, and there were probably 300 of us in uh-huh. vigil, yeah. So I believe, you know, you show up, and before I turned on Woody Allen, I loved that he said that 80% of life is just showing up. It's so true. So I love San Quentin. I raised my child on the beach there, and um, I was asked to bring in a writing workshop. And so I brought my friend Nishama, who I write about so much, and she is uh, from the um, storytelling tradition. She doesn't write, which is so great for writers that people that don't write that yeah. are so brilliant. Leaves a little you room sti- for the rest of us. Really? Well, you yeah. can take all of their lines, too, yeah. and they're not going <laughs> to, they don't need or want them. So um, I've always told writing students they should really upgrade their friendships. But anyway. <laughs> Um, so Nishama's brilliant, and she tells story, stories. And she's funny, and she's very Jewish, and she used to have this really huge butt, and she had this horrible it's red gone dress now? on. It's gone Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. She's it's like 75 now, and she just changed the way of eating about five years ago, and now she's about like we are, you know? But she had this big butt and this horrible red d- plaid dress, you know? And she has hair just like mine when it's not threads. So it's crazy, curly, fuzzy, wiry. And I thought, well, I'll bring her. It'll be fun for her. But the prisoners, you know, they're here for me. <laughs> 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 they're here for me, Al Franken. So, um... <laughs> So we went in and I told them, I told them bird by bird, I told them small assignments, I told them that you write terrible, terrible first drafts, that you carry a pen, it's the secret of life for a writer, that if you don't carry a pen, God is going to give me the good ideas that we're going to go to you otherwise. <laughs> God is going to say, I was going to give Kelly that insight, she has no pen. Right. I'm going to give it to that cute Anne Lamont. <laughs> she always has a pen. So I told the students and you know the, the prisoners and they all clapped and then Nishama came out. She is so juicy and so real. And storytellers, like, they talk, like, with their bodies, you know? It's a 3D thing. And she told them some old um, Russian fairy tale. But she told them, and they made contact with her. Because it was coming from just the purest, happiest, um, connected place inside herself. And then 
when they'd ask me questions, they'd ask like one. I mean, she stole the show right out from under me <laughs> and uh, effectively ended the friendship. But, um, <laughs> but they would say to her, where do you find your stories? And they'd say, she said, they're inside you. They're the jewels, the moments. They're your moments of life. And they're inside of you. And there's a common well of shared experience. Some of the men had murdered people. Some of the men had you know, been imprisoned unfairly for whatever. But he, she said, we all have the same story to tell. We were here for a while. Some days went better than others, you know. Some days are just too long. And, and friends usually stuck by us. And we came through, and it was kind of a miracle. And we're still here. And they were like, yes, yes, yes. They, they all went just crazy. <laughs> they really went crazy. And um, so that was the story of I told them everything I could, and Nishama told them everything she could, and in us sharing at that level, they were seen, and they saw each other, and they looked around, and they went, whoa. Yeah. The third great prayer, they said, wow. And, and they started, you know, trying to form storytelling guilt. You know, I was thinking of, um, some, of, of, of all these tragedies that have just <sighs> pummeled us in the last few months and, and longer. And, and, you know, I love that line of um, Mr. Rogers' mother when, when he was a little boy and there were tragedies. Uh, she said, look to the helpers. You know, you want to mm -hmm. see God or, or, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. or hope, look to the helpers. And I love that line, but I also love the line of Barry, the great novelist Barry Lopez's when he says, sometimes people are more hungry for a story than they are for food. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. that's what I do with people. I go to church in Marin City, which is a very, very destitute area, and I just give everyone pens and cheap notebooks. And I say, put this in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. Tell me your story. Tell mm -hmm. it badly. Tell it too long. Mm -hmm. Even giving people eye contact, I think, is a big it's thing. A like miracle. when we yeah, pass yeah, yeah. Uh, homeless people, I think, yeah. I tell the girls, like, yeah. just look at them and say hi. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Because maybe nobody looked at them all day today. All day. And nobody knows their name or mm -hmm. anything. It's well, like, my church takes a convalescent ministry in once a month, and, and all I do is touch people. And mm -hmm. I say to them, you know what? I'm glad you're here. And they may not know me from Adam's house cat, you know, because a lot <laughs> of them are pretty far, far pretty deteriorated mentally and they look at me and we touch hands and it's communion mm -hmm. it's the most spiritual thing you do is to touch another person mm -hmm. whether it's their hand sometimes I'll just touch people's hands someone's in grief sometimes people will talk to me because I seem honest not true but uh, <laughs> I'll tell them I just finished war and peace or something or they'll uh, um, and I'll just reach out and go like that and that's what the mother does you yeah. know at two and that's uh -huh. what the mother does and that's how we touch the very very old that's how we touch the homeless yeah my cousin Kathy lost her son, and she said that the most useful person in her life during that time was her buddy who would walk right in the back door and just come sit with her in bed and just take her hand. Yeah. No words. No words. Because it was like too much. Mm -hmm. some, some things there are no words for. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Exactly on KQED Public Radio. We'll be back after a break. Support for this podcast comes from the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions concerning the cosmos, human purpose, and the divine. Learn more at templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. This program was recorded live at Medium. 
the place to share stories and ideas that matter most to you. If you're enjoying this conversation, there's more like it in our podcast. For instance, with writer and actor B.J. Novak on comedy. I think comedy can relieve us with a visceral insight. It can be a physiological relief to have an insight. You can tell a dark truth in a pleasurable way with comedy, and I think that's probably unique. That's B.J. Novak on our podcast at kqed.org slash exactly, or on iTunes. Welcome back to Exactly. I'm Kelly Corrigan with Anne Lamont. How are you doing mustering compassion for your enemies? Mm -hmm. Like the Bush family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know it's a lifelong goal of yours. You know, I've gotten a little bit um, with with George Bush. And the the one who, for me, is the high water mark is um, Dick Cheney, you know? (laughs) And I struggle, and I'm like 8% better, you know? And it's been 10 years or whatever, and it's been six years, and I'm like 8% better. But you know what? I'll take it. Yeah. That's how grace appears to us. And um, one of my favorite uh, stories was from Ram Dass, who who I really loved when I was like 20, and, you know, I always have loved him. But I remember, let's see, I guess Ronald Reagan was president. Was it Casper Weinberger? Reagan's Secretary of Defense? Yes. Okay, now Casper Weinberger, this is going to sound harsher than I mean, but was just an evil monster, right? (laughs) Just an evil monster, like as bad as Cheney. Again, I mean that in the good way. But but Ram Dass was in India, you know, very Jewish guy at Harvard, got the boot from Harvard, was at the ashram in in India, and his teacher, um, Maharaji, was um, said, you have to love and serve everyone, you know, which is, uh, it's like, well, do you mean, and I want to work on it, right. work with it, right. like, do you mean love and serve everybody kind of in this, uh, this other, and, and no, you have to love and serve everyone, Dick Cheney, but his was Casper Weinberger, so he would um, get out, uh, Rondas would get out his puja table, his prayer table every morning, and he put Mother Mary on, who I'm mad about, and <laughs> Jesus, and his guru, and Ganesh and, and um, you know, everybody in the Hindu pantheon. And then he put out a little tiny picture of Casper Weinberger. <laughs> and, um, and he began his morning prayer saying, oh, Mary, bless you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Mahatma Gandhi, thank you, Guruji, thank you. And then he say, good morning, Casper. <laughs> So uh, chapter three is called Show Your Upper Arms, Mm -hmm. um, which you and I both know exactly what that means. Maybe Mm -hmm. others don't. Mm -hmm. And so I had a subtitle as Be People Together. Mm -hmm. All of the stories of yours that I love the best are when you're talking about someone you love. And I, I think that you have these super deep friendships, but maybe deepest of all was your Pammy. Mm-hmm. So can you tell these guys about the things that you were able to achieve um, with Pam in that friendship that allowed you to be more real with the rest of us forever mm-hmm. after, you know? Because I mm-hmm. do feel like once it happens once, it can keep happening, you know? Yeah, yeah. You break the code. 
Yeah. You know, the first time, first moment of spiritual illumination, having been raised by atheists and you know people who bowed down before the golden calf of the New York Times every morning, was when I when I was coming up in the 50s and early 60s. Everyone read biographies, remember? And every classroom would have like biographies, and there'd be like 24 of them, and 20 of them would be men. Oh, for right? sure. And yeah, then and then Harriet women, Tubman. Madam Curie, yeah. Harriet Tubman, and Amelia Earhart. Yeah. And when Amelia Earhart is working, when Annie Sullivan is working with her and drawing the word for water on her hand and holding her hand under the pump, and, she, and Helen Keller has that moment. And the, even though she's blind, the lights go on, and then she runs around. This a plant. It's a plant, but it's yeah. that moment of making that one connection on that cellular level. And my experience of that was with this friend Pammy, who'd been my best friend in um, all through high school and all through my whole entire life. And she'd gotten breast cancer at an early age and died at 37. But a few weeks before she went, I had this boyfriend, and he liked to see me in a dress. And. Uh, <laughs> And, um, and he had bought very expensive tickets to Lucinda Williams, and so I felt I owed him the dress, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and Pammy and I went to Macy's, and she was in her wig and wheelchair, and she was three weeks from death with a two-year-old daughter behind, and um, I put this one dress on. And I, am, I have, was always so shy about my thighs and upper arms, and, and, um, and I came out to where she was um, sitting in her chair, and I said, do you think this dress makes me look big in the thighs, and she looked at me, she said, Annie, you don't have that kind of time. <laughs> and I just got it, like the lights went on. And ever since then, I have thought of, you know, and ever since then, I started going out in a, not in public, in a swimsuit, but I swim <laughs> on, I'm actually wearing one right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Woo! And, um, and I swim in every body of warm water I can find. Yeah. I swim in front of strangers, I swim in front of men, mm -hmm. and I say to women, swim, right. get in the damn water. The water right. is where the healing your hair. is. Mess up your hair. The water is where the healing is. Get back in, get back in. And um, you know, I wrote this piece of Facebook re recently where I just had a lot of sorrows and the world has been so full of suffering and craziness, and I got obsessed with needing a neck lift. And I became completely obsessed with how I'm six years old, I'm in public a lot, I'm on stages with bright lights, and I thought, well, I need to get a neck lift. I mean, duh. Oh, lordy. And, um, and, and the end of the story is going to see the very best cosmetic surgeon in Marin County. I mean, I did it. You know, I kind of army crawled into his <laughs> office from my car. Yeah, you're a little recognizable in, I in look, Marin. Yeah. I know, right? And I went in because it was on my heart. I don't shame myself anymore. The fifth rule is if you're going to, if you um, are going to show up anyway, you better be ashamed. I thought, I'm not going to be ashamed. The yeah. world, you know, and so I went in and he said, well, see, there was this thing called the mini neck lift. Everything, <laughs> most industry in this country is about how to parlay women's hatred of their bodies into a fortune, right? So there was this thing called the mini necklace, and that makes it sound so cute, like it's not really a real <laughs> facelift. It's kind of more like a SpongeBob facelift, right? Yeah. So I was gonna get a little SpongeBob facelift. And you know, I grew up in California, and the only skin advice anyone had was like baby oil and uh, tin foil reflectors, right? right. On, your the, albums, on your albums, on your double albums. On your double albums, right. So, so he said, see if we do this, what happens is it makes your face crease up. So that's why people get the mini facelift when they get the neck lift. And then, and then I said, oh, okay, wow, because I don't want, that's like getting 
cosmetic surgery. Yeah. So, so then he said, and then if you get, I'll show you, he said, if you get the mini facelift, then it makes your eyes so much more wrinkled. So you got it. And then he said, the thing is, Anne, you have such expressive eyes. This is an elderly plastic surgeon. Did you kiss him right on the mouth? I felt like, <laughs> you I know. I just embrace that person. I felt like I made a friend because he told me this thing that this culture is so starved for and lacking, which is a little bit of truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, my... And it was lifted. The trance was broken. Yeah. And I haven't even thought about it. I mean, I'm 60. I forgot to work out after I had a child. I meant to. Um, <laughs> and... You know, I have a five-year-old grandson now where he's at my house 50% of the time. I'm a writer. I'm a, you know, I'm in recovery. I'm in all this stuff. I'm not going to probably get to the gym tomorrow, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but, but he said to me, um, Nana, can I take a shower with you if I promise not to laugh? <laughs> and it was just so great. You yeah. Know? It was so great. So, you know, I, I, I bust myself gently and other people oh bust me God. too. Oh, my God. I was yeah. taking a bath with one of my girls a long, long time ago. They're very, they were young. It was fine. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and Georgia looked at me and said, looked at my boobs and said, Mommy, when are my boobs going to be as long as your boobs? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, after you have a few I'm, children and you breastfeed them because the people make you. Right. <laughs> That's when. Yeah. So there are times, you know, I, I, because I believe so passionately that you take the action yeah. and the insight will follow, that is that you're beautiful. You know, you're a precious, living human being. So many brothers and sisters have died. Mm -hmm. Life, a day of life is like a miracle. And I so believe in that. So I'll wear shorts and, and I'll go out, you know, and I don't hold a gun to my head, but I say, it's hot. <laughs> and I want to wear shorts, and I, I have cellulite, and, right. and, and I want to die. But it's hot, and I'm a precious daughter of the covenant. Right. I'm a, I was saved and given life by the women's movement. <laughs> and it's hot, and I'm going to wear shorts today. Yeah. And you wear the shorts, and you just feel so much better, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's the insight. Oh, wait. When I do this radical self-care and this radical maternal behavior of, it's okay, we're going to wear shorts, it's hot, yeah. I get the insight. God, it's just so great to be in the shade and in shorts and to have a glass of water. I have everything I need. Right. Instead of thinking, oh, I hate myself. I know I'd feel better if I looked like Uma Thurman. Right. You know? right. Uma Thurman has the same self-loathing that all American women have. Right. Right. right? So the last thing I want to ask you is, um, I know that, that you believe that there are like secular hymns everywhere and there are lay mm -hmm. churches and there are ministers, you know, we minister to each other all the time. Mm -hmm. But do you also think, oh, you need to get yourself to church, Kelly Corrigan, and all these people who are spending their Sundays with the New York, New York Times and a latte, do you think, oh, it's so much better if you could just get yourself into a church? I have never, ever once tried to convert anybody and I will not argue with people about God. Most Christians think I am like the devil, you know? They don't carry my work in Christian bookstores because I'm too- They don't? Because no. I write about abortion rights and I write about a lot of um, liberal, uh, I mean, I'm just a born to die bleeding heart liberal. 
And so they'll say, uh, like I used to get calls on, t uh, uh, on in the South, and people would say, well, I wonder just how funny you think you're going to be when you're rotten in hell for all eternity, Anne Lamar. <laughs> and I'd say, you know, this is why people loathe Christians and why I personally do too in many, many cases. But I don't feel um, that it's my... I feel it, I do feel I have a mission, and I feel my mission is to show up and to get thirsty people water. I sit with people, and I don't try to correct their feelings. I sit with people, and I might touch the back of their hand, and I let people feel as awful as they need to feel for as long as they need to feel. Mm -hmm. And I try to birth coach people. I say to people, life is very short. Stop hitting the snooze button, you know. Mm -hmm. Wake up. That's why we're here. Wake <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. like um, the workaholism and the and the multitasking and the all. Teenagers are afraid of their parents because they see gray, overworked, stressed parents who are not getting along all that well because they're not filling up. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're accomplishing, they're achieving, they're impressing, and they're desperate for what they don't have. And you know, by a certain age. You're not starving for what you're not getting. You know, you're starving for what you're not giving. You're starving for the flow you're not participating in. You're f starving for not receiving and, you know, being the tide pool of, you know, of, um, of serving and of letting people love you even when you're at your most awful. Teenagers are scared to be the way most of their parents are. Mm. And so I say, to parent, I say to parents and I say to teenagers, there's another way. And it's the same thing you and I have talked about this when we talk about writing. Stop. Stop living unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Stop getting so stoned on your own media. You know, stop getting mm -hmm. so stoned on how impressed people are with you because you don't take it with you. Mm -hmm. You know, what you, you, you know, who you are is who you love. And I do believe that uh, in another side of eternity, and I do believe that the soul survives, but it doesn't matter because when you leave here, what you take with you is the love you shared, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. the Beatles. And so, um, so I give teenagers that truth, and I give them poetry, and mm -hmm. I give them pens. Mm -hmm. I give them pens, poetry, and I say, um, you get to wake up, you know, your parents get to think everything they think and you get to think what you think. I never try to change people's minds about mm -hmm. God because mm -hmm. anytime anyone has tried to change my mind, I just run screaming for my cute little life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a joy to talk to you. Thank you. Right? Yeah. All right. So we end every interview with seven questions. We ask every guest, uh, what song have you listened to more than any other? Probably Leonard Cohen singing Hallelujah. Oh, it's the best. Uh, it, it for the me, best. it completely breaks whatever trance my mind has gotten into. I hear it, and it's like a plant mister. I go, <gasps> right, <sighs> right. Um, if you had a year to get really good at something, what would you try? What I would get really good at is meditation. Uh-huh. I spend a lot of my time doing that. Who do people say you look just like? Well, as you've commented on, I look so exactly like me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I had hoped to look more like Reese Witherspoon, but um, <laughs> um, I look a lot. My son and I look very much. He's got thick, dark, straight brown hair and we look very much alike and people have said I have a passing resemblance to Sigourney Weaver who mm -hmm. I adore yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good one because we both have these big green eyes and slightly irregular features <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to see fixed in your lifetime 
I think almost nothing is fixable. I think mm. most of the suffering in our lives and in the way we face the suffering of the world is in trying to fix situations that are not fixable. I hope my dog's um, leg heals. Uh, but I think we're here to like get thirsty people water. That's you know the, which you, that's the Jesus thing is get thirsty people water and and um, and sit down with them, sit down with people and get them some water. And you're just gonna have to let it go at that. Mm-hmm. No fixing. As little fixing. I mean, my default. Not that you're not afraid to try to fix someone. My default response to almost everything is to try to fix, save, and rescue. And I have learned, starting at the age of about 50, my help is not helpful. My son is on his own warrior's journey. And and when you're a mother, you don't get to run alongside your children with like juice boxes and chapstick. You know, (laughs) you are injuring them. It's a form of abuse. And I do that with everyone. I release, I release, I release, and I grip myself and I say, Annie, stop. Yeah. Um, If everyone on earth could kill one person without repercussion, would you be killed by whom and why? Well, that's harsh, Kelly. I know. I felt it. When I was asking you, I thought, you can't ask this beautiful woman this terrible question, but yet I have to. I think there's a lot of really uh, fundamentalist. Dick Cheney, of course, is coming uh, for you. A lot of fundamentalist Christians would think that killing me was an eye for an eye because I have had abortions and I have um, fought and will this side of the grave march for the right of women to have abortion. So they would say, this is just a murderer, and God says it's fine to kill her. Mm. (laughs) So we're going to. We'll make it a party. Yeah. Uh, And lastly, if you could say four words to anyone, whom would you address, and what would you say? I'd say, you will come through. Thank you so much. You're so wonderful. You're so special. Thank you. Thanks for coming to Medium. You're welcome. Don't you feel kind of healed? I mean, I probably had a dozen exactly moments listening to Anne Lamott talk. I always do. But the one that I took away with me is that she's a fixer. She's someone who does love. And I relate to that. But then I remembered what a very wise therapist told me a long time ago which is that the number one thing that people want is to feel they've been felt. And I thought, right, exactly. Thanks for coming with us. Please be in touch, and I'll talk to you soon. This is Exactly, produced by KQED Public Radio. This interview was recorded live at the San Francisco offices of Medium, place to share stories and ideas that matter most to you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out my talk with comedic giant John Cleese on creativity. To get out of the rut, you need a real space and and a lack of anxiety. And I think at the moment, it's very hard for people to have that, particularly with all the IT devices beeping and blinking. You're always distracted. And that's not good for creativity. You can hear more from the insightful and totally upfront John Cleese on our podcast at kqed.org slash exactly or on iTunes. Thanks to our team, producers Kat Snow and Anna Adlerstein, coordinating producer Melissa Williams, engineer Jim Bennett, production manager Jennifer Harrison, and executive producer Michael Issop. 
My name is Kelly Corrigan, and I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for listening, and please be in touch.